0: Greetings everyone. This is Sanjeev Chopra. I'm a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and I'm absolutely honored to be your host this session. This is another segment entitled Coffee with Dr. Chopra. And today's guest is one of my colleagues, a dear friend, an absolutely distinguished, world-renowned professor of oncology, professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Lord Schnipper is the Theodore W. and Evelyn Berenson professor of medicine, distinguished professor of medicine in the field of oncology at Harvard Medical School. He is the past clinical director of the Cancer Center and chief of the hematology oncology division in the Department of Medicine at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. He led that division for many decades uh, with great acclaim and built an amazing division of oncology and hematology during these years. So, Lowell, I'm very delighted and thrilled that you're going to be on this segment with us.
1: This is my pleasure. Mm A copy with Dr. Chopra is a treat. And I look forward to talking about something that we're both passionately interested in, which is the cancer problem and how we can save lives looking to the future.
0: Yeah, so you know, Lowell, I was reflecting that when I was a student or a junior uh, attending in medicine, you know, cancer treatment was very harsh. It was chemotherapy, radiation, surgery. We read about nitrogen mustard, And to some extent, cancer treatment is still pretty disabling and can be devastating. But there have been amazing advances. We had never heard of the term immuno-oncology. What is immuno-oncology? What percentage of patients right now are benefiting, cancer patients are benefiting? And if you had to predict what will happen in the next 5, 10 years in that particular field, share those insights with us.
1: Immune oncology or immuno-oncology is probably the most exciting area in the field right now. If we go back to the origins of cancer and our modern understandings of the disease, it has always been seen as some sort of a foreign invader in, in the body. And physicians, oncologists, scientists throughout time have tried to discover why is it that this disease is not rejected in fact there is one cancer that is rejected and it served as a clue and that is the disease called choriocarcinoma. that turns out to be a disease that's often curable in women and it's because it is a cancer that emerges from placental origins that have fetal antigens And as a result, mom develops an immunologic response and that insight has been tucked away for years, but probably represents the first inkling that there can be an immunologic response to cancer. And then there are people over the years who've had melanoma and the disease magically seems to go away, sometimes after a pregnancy. Why that happens, nobody understands exactly, except that it appears to be a rejection phenomenon. So building and building momentum came the science of immunology as it applies to cancer, developing in parallel, of course, with the field of immunology in microbial infections, et cetera. Um, It turns out though, that while patients can be found to develop antibodies against the cancer, they actually do not reject the cancer most of the time. And so doctors have tried for years to make vaccines without success. However, a really dramatic um, advance came, must be 25 or 30 years ago, when Cesar Milstein and coworkers developed monoclonal antibodies, because then it was possible to actually purify in large amount an antibody that could be directed against a cancer cell. And indeed, over the years, probably now 20 years and counting, there are antibodies we regularly use that are produced by monoclonal hybrid technology that can be directed against breast cancer cells of a certain type, lymphoma cells, with curative intent when coupled with immune therapy. But still, this was just a hint of the kind of power that immunology can bring to bear. More recently and about two years ago, a Nobel Prize was actually given for the idea or the proof that cancer cells produce something that dampens the immune response. We call it energy. The host becomes energic to the tumor because the cancer cell blunts T cells. And this turns out to be a key that has opened up an enormous therapeutic opportunity. By identifying how the immune system is blunted by the cancer cell, antibodies have been created that neutralize that blunting with astonishingly good results, long lasting results in some of the most intractable cancers. And here I mean melanoma metastatic kidney cancer, non-small cell lung cancer, Hodgkin's lymphoma, diseases like this that have gone beyond standard treatment approaches are now much more amenable to at least chronic therapy that lasts for a long time. And the hints are such that now this immunology approach is being brought into the, uh, the treatment of local cancers that look ominous when they present, that's of course in the research arena and not in the fact arena, but that's where we're heading. Immunology in the service of cancer therapy. Terrific.
0: How are these treatments tolerated?
1: Like every treatment uh, that we know of for cancer, there's always some ill effects. Certainly compared to what you described at the opening comments when you talk about nitrogen mustard and others which have rather harsh side effects the immunologic therapies for the most part are well tolerated however because they are immunologic in nature they sometimes release antibodies against self antigens and rarely but notably we can see uh, illnesses like hepatitis or colitis or even adrenal insufficiency hypothyroidism because of these unleashed immunologic events. I should stress they're a minority of the patients, but nonetheless, they represent a noteworthy uh, type of toxicity that, of course, oncologists are trying to ameliorate, and many of them can be ameliorated.
0: Terrific. You know, we're, we're in the midst of this global pandemic uh, with coronavirus and there, there is hope. People are starting to get vaccinated. A nurse in New York, I believe, was the first individual to get vaccinated in our country with the Pfizer vaccine. There are two viruses, hepatitis B virus and HPV, that can lead to cancer. And we have vaccines. And in a sense, those vaccines are anti-cancer vaccines. Can you comment on that?
1: Yes, this is among the most wonderful developments in all of the history of oncology, if you ask me. And that's because we will always be better off preventing cancer, because it'll be easier to do if we can distribute the technology than treating cancer, which is excessively complex. So, for example, we've known for years since the work... um, uh, that was done on hepatitis B in, uh, in Australia, in the Australia aborigines, that the hepatitis virus called the hepatitis B virus causes not only hepatitis, but can also cause liver cancer. Vaccinating against that virus can actually prevent both the hepatitis and the cancer. Hepatitis C is a virus that will also cause liver cancers. That virus, too, can be treated now with with uh, drugs that are miraculous in eradicating the virus in many, many patients. And probably for an enormous number of individuals in under-resourced countries, cervical cancer is a disease that has been found to be caused by the papillomavirus. And vaccines are probably 90 percent effective in preventing the disease. The disease. Um, What does that mean? It really means that equitable access to some of these things represents a mountain that we've not yet adequately climbed. Because when you look at Western Europe or the US, you see vaccines against a variety of cancers being broadly used, although probably not as broadly as optimal, but in under-resourced countries. Places like India, where 70% of the world's burden of cervical cancer resides, We need to have this distribution of a vaccine that is highly effective. The same goes for sub-Saharan Africa. So we have through science an etiologic understanding of this disease or some of these cancer diseases, and we have vaccines that can actually prevent the disease, and yet we have distribution problems, problems of access that represent an enormous global health challenge.
0: And to some extent, <laughs> we have philanthropists like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I actually like to call it the Melinda and, and Bill Gates Foundation because she's been a driving force behind it that have uh, contributed billions of dollars for vaccine distribution in those parts of the world. Uh, pretty you, phenomenal.
1: I think you're right about that. Um, A real shout out goes to Bill and Melinda Gates, or Melinda and Bill Gates. Um, It turns out that, for example, Zimbabwe, which is a country I work in and I know quite well, um, they simply don't have the the, uh, financial resources to afford the vaccine. And um, through the Gates Foundation and the World Health Organization, there is a coalescence of organizations that are actually donating money to enable under-resourced countries to purchase at a very, very low price per dose, these life-saving vaccines. So then it becomes a matter of the country signing up for it and having the infrastructure to distribute the vaccines effectively.
0: Terrific. You know, you and I uh, were privileged to have uh, a colleague, the late Dr. Judah Folkman, Brilliant surgeon at Children's Hospital who spawned the field of angiogenesis. Uh, could you please comment on some of his seminal contributions?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, you certainly hit the nail on the head. He was a brilliant biologist. Judah was a pediatric surgeon <clears throat> who became fascinated by the biology of tumors because he conceived of a tumor as an unhealing wound. And um, he re- he's the one who reasoned that the tumor might well be producing something that attracts endothelial cells to therefore establish vasculature into itself and thereby nurture itself. And the, the way this was discovered is utterly fascinating. And it points that um, science is really a matter of chance favoring the prepared mind. Um, so Judah's lab was working um, with endothelial cells in culture. And they left um, they left a culture in the incubator over the weekend quite inadvertently. And when they came back, it wasn't really Judah, but one of his postdocs who opened the culture up and noticed that there was mold in the culture. And rather than sort of saying, oh, expletive and throw the thing out. He looked at it and noticed that where there was mold, there were no endothelial cells. Where there wasn't mold, there were plenty of endothelial cells. And fortunately, he did not throw it away, but rather said, there's something here that's actually stopping the growth of these endothelial cells. Well, if you go back to Alexander Fleming, that's pretty much how penicillin got discovered so judah basically and his lab then produced the first or purified the first substance that is indeed or was indeed anti-angiogenic it is not the drug that we recognize and use in um, treatment of cancer but it represents the blowing open of a whole field i have to say that in thinking about anti-angiogenesis we now know it's important these drugs can be helpful but they're not nearly as impactful as we once had hoped. We do use them. We use them especially in diseases like kidney cancer, where they definitely can uh, delay the progression of the disease, but they haven't provided us the cure that we're beginning to see or hint at with some other more modern therapies, such as the immunology of cancer I discussed earlier, and also some targeted therapies that take advantage of the genetics genetic abnormalities of the cancer cell. That too is a spectacular story.
0: You know, I was reflecting and thinking about environmental toxins and their role in cancer. And I think everyone listening is familiar with aflatoxin and liver cancer and with asbestos and lung cancer and mesothelioma with cigarette smoking, lung cancer bladder cancer. Chimney sweeps they don't exist anymore, I believe. But when they did, they got scrotal cancer. We have a different enemy right now, and that enemy is global and that enemy is obesity. And correct me if I'm wrong, but obesity is linked to many cancers and people with a particular cancer, if they have obesity, have a worse prognosis. Women with breast cancer after treatment who exercise have less recurrence. Something that we need to be cognizant of and and understand at the basic science level.
1: Yeah, your question is is well put. For example, in breast cancer, it's really an interesting conundrum in premenopausal breast cancer, obesity doesn't seem to be a problem. But in postmenopausal breast cancer um, or in postmenopausal women, obesity is a major risk factor for developing the disease and the risk factor for recurrence of the disease. Obesity is a major issue for colorectal cancer, fat consumption for or for sure. Same for prostate cancer. So th- there is a worldwide epidemic. And um, it's it's completely out of control. Now, one of the there have been some victories in the arena of environment, life uh, patterns of of living, etc. And I would want to point out that while there's more work to do, the single most important impact on mortality from cancer in our world is related to cessation of tobacco use. So tobacco, you mentioned many, many toxic chemicals in our environment. Asbestos, of course, probably pollution contributes in a major, major way. But there's nothing remotely of the magnitude of tobacco and its impact. And as tobacco education programs have been promulgated in in every society where they've been done, they actually decrease the mortality from tobacco related diseases and if we think about them they're quite common of course there's carcinoma of the lung which is a major one but there is bladder cancer many many cancers are impacted by tobacco so we have in our uh, armamentarium the wherewithal to prevent cancer in huge numbers by simply limiting exposure to this particular toxin were we to eliminate the problem of air pollution my guess is that we also would have a major, major addition in on the benefit side of preventing some of these aerodigestive lesions.
0: Terrific. You know, about 10 years ago, there was an exhibition at Harvard Medical School, and it related to cigarette smoking, tobacco and cancer. And I was walking through the exhibit hall and I was astounded to see something I wasn't aware of. And it was that there were doctors who promoted cigarette smoking. And it was a particular brand called Lucky Cigarettes. Talk about bad luck, you know. (laughs) So I think we've come a long way. Um, What's been called. The new smoking now is sitting. And it turns out that if we are sedentary and sit in front of the computer for seven hours at a stretch, Even if we're in decent shape and do exercise on a regular basis and uh, do aerobics, we are at increased risk for mortality. Sitting has been called the new smoking.
1: (laughs) It's an interesting perspective, and I will give you some very drilled down observation. Um, Take the arena of breast cancer, because that's a clinical arena in which I work. It turns out that if a woman who's had breast cancer exercises regularly, diminishes her weight by literally a modest amount, five or 10 pounds, just a, few percent, a small percentage of her body weight, she's likely to lower her risk of recurrence of that cancer by about 20%, and probably the risk of get developing a second brand new cancer by a comparable amount. So the power of what you're describing is really astonishing, and it points to the fact that we have so much in terms of the potential for improvement in our own lifestyles if we essentially do diet, you know, obey the reasonable diet uh, inscriptions that most people find common sense, low fat, modest carbohydrate, and high protein, exercise regularly, probably 30, 35 minutes a day, five or six days a week, that kind of thing will actually promote health in a general, in a general sense. It'll combat obesity and it'll probably help us each add a few months or years collectively to our lives.
0: Perfect. What about the understanding of genomics and how that's going to play out or is playing out in the field of oncology?
1: Yeah, when I was when I was a student, when you were a student, we this was not even in our consciousness. But beginning about 30 years ago, 25 years ago, a cancer genomics initiative paralleled the attempt to sequence the human genome. So the cancer genome and the human genome have been sequenced almost in real time, one with the other. And that has led us to an understanding that there are many, many alterations in the DNA sequence that drive specific cancers. And this has led to two major themes that are being developed as we speak. One is targeted therapy. for example, lung cancers that are promoted by mutations in the epidermal growth factor receptor, these are now treatable with extensions of life that are very significant by a simple pill that is taken every day that combats this mutation that drives the cancer cell forward. But the other that is utterly astonishing and not nearly fulfilled its promise yet, but will, is the ability to take blood samples, sequence the DNA in the blood, identify sequences that might have emanated from a cancer. If it's a cancer that we don't know about, it may lead us to early diagnosis someday if we can localize using imaging techniques yet to be developed, the source or the origin of these sequences. In the individual who has cancer, we can observe newly developed mutations that are not even at the clinical level, but that can be treated, we think, we hope, with drugs that counter the effect of the mutation. And this, too, should make living with cancer a much more plausible, less toxic, um, An easy to do uh, process.
0: There are two other, uh, I believe, hot topics in medicine in general, and one of them is artificial intelligence. I don't even call it artificial intelligence, maybe <laughs> augmented intelligence or aided intelligence. And the other is the microbiome, the 100 trillion bacteria in our gut also called the second human genome newly discovered organ in a bacterial rainforest. And I happen to give a talk called microbiome, man, and medicine in many CME courses around the country and pre-COVID different parts of the world. And I'm so intrigued to see that the response to chemotherapy and the side effects of chemotherapy may relate to our individual microbiome. So clearly in its infancy, and then of course, Augmented intelligence, just think about it. If somebody is looking at mammograms or looking at a pathological specimen, if you can augment that analysis with AI, it's going to be so much more accurate. And that's coming down the pike. Oh, yeah. division at the Beth Israel Deaconess. We are using augmented intelligence at, for colonoscopy an upper endoscopy, you see somebody with barracks esophagus, AI will tell us whether there's dysplasia or not, whether we should take 18 biopsies or zero. It's coming. It's really fascinating.
1: It is utterly fascinating. You know, I, as you know, I'm quite interested in cervical cancer and its prevention. And it turns out that in Africa, we are doing a program that involves the simple step of putting acetic acid on the cervix and looking for a white mark that represents neoplasia and separates it from normal epithelium. Well, as you can imagine, this is a visual and a rather crude technique. So it turns out that using artificial intelligence, simply digital imaging, you can actually look at one of these sites and and by virtue of the computer, collating thousands and thousands and thousands of images that have been proven to be cervical cancer. You can look at a woman's cervix after some acetic acid is put onto it and give a much higher degree of probability if this is suspicious or not. This field is now exploding because as you say, whether it's Barrett's esophagus or perhaps colon cancer or perhaps cervical cancer, using the capacity to collate Millions and millions of data points is giving us a greater degree of precision in mammography, in cervical cancer detection, in in almost all areas of diagnostics. The NIH is now promoting uh, or requests for applications to do exactly this, to look at mobile phone applications that of digital imaging that can lead us towards algorithms that will define the presence or absence of disease in a low-cost setting that is likely to permit much earlier detection with greater precision. I think you hit on a great topic there.
0: The um, final comments and uh, a question: I, Niels Bohr, Nobel laureate physicist, once said, "Predictions are hazardous." particularly those about the future. I used to think it was Yogi Berra, and I even had a slide to that effect in one of my talks in a physician attendee some years ago corrected me and I looked it up and it is more. So I want you to make a prediction in oncology. What's gonna be the most amazing thing or is it going to be a confluence of things? in the next decade.
1: I I do believe there is going to be a confluence of things, but what the confluence of things is going to lead us to is the magic of genomics and optical engineering. There'll be a marriage between these areas so that we will be able to discover cancer in its earliest forms and therefore treat it before it becomes a major clinical problem. The other is going to be for those who are uh, affected by cancer, I do believe that there is much more promise in manipulating our immune system in the service of therapy that will be effective, long lasting and less toxic. I, but I'm thinking that our axis of activity should always be towards trying to prevent the disease, whether by preaching good health practices, cleaning up our environment, or discovering the disease as early as possible or even when there's a predisposition and no actual disease because then we will rid the population of this scourge only i'm sure to have some other scourge replace it but nonetheless that's that's progress
0: terrific thank you so very much for sharing your wisdom your insights decades of amazing experience uh, with everyone uh this morning oh you're welcome I'm very grateful to you
1: and and i'd love to get one of those coffee with dr chopra mugs <laughs> <laughs> okay
0: we'll do that we'll take care okay. of that yeah thanks everyone have a great day be well yep. be safe okay. bye